Our mission statement, I remind you as always, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. We want everybody to hear this message that, that God saves and God redeems, and we want everyone to live their life for King Jesus. So we're going to continue in our series. We've been calling this series, How God Makes Bad Men Good, the book of Romans. So if you want to know what the book of Romans is about, it's about how God changes us and makes us, I mean, we're bad and he makes us good in his eyes. And so if you would, open to Romans chapter 2. We can be in verses 1 through 11, a sermon I'm calling Religion or Righteousness. Now, just to give you a little preview of what we're going to be talking about. You know, I've been telling you that the book of Romans is about the imputed righteousness of Christ. So ask that. It's a question again, religion or righteousness. Um, if you've devoted much time to sharing the gospel, I think you'll probably agree with this statement that I'm about to make. But it is my opinion that the hardest, most difficult people to reach with the gospel are religious people. They're very difficult to reach because they don't see their need. They think these acts that they're doing makes them fit in the eyes of God. Because after all, they're very religious, right? They're, they're religious and so they're doing all these do's and don'ting all the don'ts and they're checking all the boxes and they think that's what God really wants. And so in turn, they don't see a need for the gospel because what they do makes them right with God. Now take somebody that has no religion, okay? Take that biker at the bar or the drunk at the other end of the bar or, or one of these prisoners <laughs> this next door that's up there for doing Lord knows what. They don't see their acts as, as gaining them any ga ground in the eyes of God, right? They are pretty much well aware. They, they need some help. But the people who are steeped in religion, okay, they have those, or maybe somebody has a set of rituals or some ceremonies, they don't believe they need help. So what happens is religion becomes this mask that they wear so that people don't see the truth. I want to recap what we've been through so far in the book of Romans, okay? Paul began this letter with the gospel, the good news. And very quickly, he set out to let everyone know that we're all accountable to God. And so for, in order for people to, to understand the good news, you have to understand the bad news, okay? And the bad news is that we are all sinners, every single one of us. You know, if you go to a doctor and the news comes back as cancer, that's bad news. But you have to understand the bad news before you can get to the good news. And the good news is this cancer can be fought. There is radiation, chemo. There's something could be done, and you can win against this cancer. That's good news. Well, here's the bad news. We're sinners. And the worst news is that our sin separates us from God. And the really, really, really bad news, there's nothing you can do. The no amount of being religious will ever save somebody. No amount of being good will ever elevate you in the eyes of God. It's not going to happen. There's nothing you can do, and that's bad news. But the good news, the good news is that Christ came to die for sinners. I would say that's awesome news. That's the greatest news that's ever been told. And so you have to understand the bad news before you can understand the good news. Well, in Romans chapter 1, Paul took us down this dark path, this, this really, I called it the devolution of mankind. That mankind has not evolved, but we have devolved, okay? Mankind did not begin in imperfection and is slowly evolving to perfection as some teach. No, but that we have began in perfection and we're devolving into imperfection, Okay? 
And then Paul tells us that all of mankind, they want to worship everything and anything under the sun, under than God. And, and, and what happens is, what a God eventually does is he just lets us go. God will allow us to worship other things other than him. And when God says, fine, have it your way, that's when truly terrifying things begin. You see, this is what I believe the vast majority of the world has done. They, they have this, this sore, if you will, this festering, oozing sore. And they say, you know what? I know it's discolored. I know it's turning green. It's starting to stink, but I'm going to keep doing the same thing. You know, I'm going to keep doing what I've been doing. After all, my parents did it. My grandparents did it. My great-grandparents did it before them. So clearly it must work, Right? For years at our former church, I served as a pastor to single adults. So my job was to minister to people that were not married from ages like 25 to death. And everywhere in between, that was my job. And I I don't know how many times, but I'd have a guy or a gal come to me. And they've been in a dating relationship. Now, note dating, not married. And they would always have this question. The question was, hey, Pastor John, I'm, I'm in this abusive relationship. I've been dating this guy or gal for three years. What should I do? And my advice was always the same. Leave. Get out of the relationship. Don't stay there. And then they would always come back with the same rebuttal to that. They would say, yeah, Pastor John, but I've been with her. I've been with him for three years. And if I leave, well, then I lose three years. And then my response was always the same. Well, you could leave now and chalk up three years to, a, to learning, you know, a little educational experience, or you can wait 50 years, and then after 53 years, you finally go, oh, wait a minute, I've wasted 53 years, but the choice is yours. It's kind of like that with religion. You see, religion always promises, but never delivers on, on, on what it's promising. That, that, that religion becomes that abusive relationship that never pans out. And with that, let's read about this in Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The Word of God says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourselves, because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. We know that the judgment of God rightfully falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, yet you do them yourselves, and you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Verse 5, but because of your hard and impotent hearts, heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Uh, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulations and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. You know, there's a lot going on in Romans chapter 2 that you really don't get with a cursory reading. But the question we should ask is going to shed a lot of light on this is, who is Paul speaking to? Okay, in this section, Paul is speaking to, I'll call them religious folk, 
Okay? He's speaking to people who were either Jewish, had this Jewish background, or either very moral Greek or Romans. Okay? Remember, this is the city of Rome that Paul is talking to. You know, the big city with all the glitz and glamour. The, the people that it would seem have it all going on. But let's recap what Paul said about this back up to Romans chapter 1, verse 28. He says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manners of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. For they are full of envy and murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So that was Romans chapter 1. And Paul talks about all this horrible, awful, rotten stuff that these unbelievers are doing. And then what's the first word in chapter 2? It says, therefore. Okay. Whenever we see the word therefore in our Bibles, the author is linking what he's just said to what he's about to say. And so when you read the word therefore, every time in the Bible, I want you to think to yourself, what therefore is therefore, therefore? And that'll kind of help you link it all together. Well, Paul just said in Romans chapter 1, he said, they don't see it fit to worship God, so God gave them up to practice all sorts of nonsense. That's the New Pastor John translation. But now in chapter 2, he says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. So if you would, picture someone who's reading Romans chapter 1, this religious person that's going, yeah, they do that, and they do that, and they do that. Kill them, God. That's what you should do. You should kill them. So Paul says, hey, religious person, you're inexcusable too. Who do you think Paul might be referring to? The answer is the person that's hiding behind their religion or the person who's hiding behind their morality. These are the self-righteous person who, let's say, trust in their baptism, who trust in their confirmation, who trust in, oh, I keep the Ten Commandments. No, you don't. There's not some high ethical standard that you live to, and then God's going to approve of that. That's, what, that's who Paul is talking to. And so what they're doing is they're looking at an unbeliever, they're looking at their lifestyle, and they're wondering why God doesn't smoke them. The truth is, God should smoke every single one of us. You and me both. He, he should smoke us all. And if you're sitting there thinking, oh, not me, I'm doing good, then you're the one God should start with. If you trust in anything other than Christ alone for your eternal safety, that's who Paul is writing Romans chapter 2 to. Now, the person that he's referring to in, in Romans chapter 2, think about it. They're probably very moral. They're probably very friendly. They're probably the person that will take the shirt off their back and give it to you. They're the type of person that if your cattle get out, they're going to go knock on your door and say, hey, your cattle are out. And they're going to spend the whole day helping you put the cattle back and on the other side of the fence, right? Because that's the religious person. Now, I've been using the term religion or religious person, the negative. Now, Jesus had a little brother by the name of James. He, he, he used it in the positive. James said it like this. 
Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep one's self unstained from the world. When, I, when I'm using the word religion in this message, that's not what I'm talking about. The dictionary definition of religion is this. It's a social cultural system of designated behaviors and practices, morals, beliefs, worldviews, texts, sanctified places, prophecies, ethics, or organization. It generally relates to humanity, to supernatural, transcendental, and spiritual elements. That's what the dictionary says. So when I'm using the word religion, that's what I'm talking about because that's what most of you think of. Okay? Now, just to be fair, I've been accused of being religious. People look at me, oh, you're such a religious guy. I don't see myself as religious. I see myself as a follower of Jesus. And what that means is he owns me. He tells me what to do. I don't tell him what to do. He's the boss. He calls the shots. Now, if you call that religion, well, then so be it. But Paul's referring to that person that really rests in their religion. They, They rest in what they have done. Paul's also referring to the moralist, the person that rests in what they have not done. The truth is neither one of those two systems can save anybody. We are not saved by what we do, and we're not saved by what we don't do. That's the person that Paul's referring to in this chapter. Nobody can be saved until you realize, I'm guilty. I'm guilty, and the only solution is found in Christ Jesus. Have you ever heard the old saying that you can't point your finger at anybody without three fingers pointing back at you? I think Paul would agree with that. Read it again, Romans 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourselves, because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. We know that the judgment of God rightfully falls on those who practice such things. This is what I want you to know. All of human judgment is distorted. All of human judgment, it's skewed. We don't know the whole story, like ever We never know the whole story. We don't know all the details. We don't know the motives. We don't know the particulars. And we don't know what causes people to do what they do. But yet at the same time, we still judge people. We don't know lots of things. And we still pass judgment. And we misjudge people all the time. We do that because our sinful brains reward us when we do that. You see, when you start to connect the dots, if there's ever a missing dot, we just fill in the dot with something we pulled out of the clear blue sky, and then our brain rewards us with dopamine. We go A to C, I don't have B, I fill it in. I'm like, oh, it feels good when I do that. Why? Because we're all dopamine junkies. We need our dopamine fix. It kind of looks like this. We see somebody driving a new car down the road. We think, oh, look at them. Throwing that in our faces. They think they're so high and mighty with that new car. And what we don't know is their car broke down. And somebody gave them a loaner. We do that with simple situations, but we do it even more with very complex situations. Situations like, oh, did you see them come forward at church? Ooh, man, they they must really have a lot going on. They think they have to go and confess it to God. And they're, they're, they, they, oh, man, they must have a lot they have to confess to get right with God. We do that. Did you know Jesus spoke about that situation? 
He did. Look in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 10. Jesus tells his story. He says, hey, two men went up on the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes all that I get. But the tax collector standing afar off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, that man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Can you see how the Pharisee is a Romans chapter 2 kind of guy? Can you see it? Oh, Lord, I do this, that, and the other thing. I'm so good. I tithe. I pray. I, I fast not once a week. I fast twice a week. Oh, I'm so good. Thank you, God, that you didn't make me like a dirty, rotten, sin and tax collector. Do you hear the bad theology that God makes somebody sin? No. The Pharisee's pointing his finger, isn't he? He doesn't know the tax collector's heart, but here's the truth. God does. You see, Jesus says that it was the tax collector that had a more accurate self-assessment. He said, God, be merciful on me, a sinner. So many people want to point their finger, but only God can pinpoint the heart. Read verse 2 again. We know that the judgment of God rightfully falls on those who practice such things. This is what I want you to know. God is going to judge the religious people. And we can sit back and say, oh, not me, not me. But God knows the truth. One attribute of God is that he's omniscient. And you know what that means? He knows everything. Like God knows everything. He knows everything. He, there's nothing that he doesn't know. I mean, I'm kind of beating the dead horse, but I want you to know God knows it all. He knows everything. He even knows the particulars on a situation. He even knows the motives. Here's the truth. You don't know. I don't know. But God knows. Read Psalms 139 verse 1. The psalmist says, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. For you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with, my, with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Did you know that God knows what I think and what you think before we even think it? Did you know that? Before a thought even enters my mind, that's scary. God knows that thought you're about to think. You see, God's in a different category than us. He knows it all. He knows about those that are trusting their religiosity. He knows who's not. You know, I just wonder if maybe there's going to come a day we're going to get to heaven, and after that wow of heaven kind of wears off, and we're able to even look up our eyes, you know, wipe the tears, <laughs> God's going to wipe the tears from our eyes, and we're going to look around and go, hey, where's old so-and-so? We're going to find out it was only a religion for them. They didn't trust in the gospel. You know, we covered this in our series in our book of Acts, but in Acts chapter 15, the church had their first argument at a business meeting. I know it's crazy that happens, right? And they had this, this debate. I called it the grace debate. And the debate was this. 
Do Gentiles have to get circumcised in order to be saved? And there's, there's two camps on this, as, as there is at every church business meeting. There's the no camp, and there's team yes. And team yes consisted of all the former Jews that have converted to Christianity and now say, hey, circumcision was such a magical experience for me. Everybody's got to do it, right? That's legalism. And that's what they're thinking. So what happened is the pastors at First Baptist Jerusalem got together. I love to call it that because it drives the other denominations crazy. But anyways... And you know what their answer was? No. You don't have to be circumcised. You know why God accepted them? Because he knows the heart. So if anyone is pointing at their fingers at some ritual, let's say baptism or anything else, or if their lack of doing something, oh, I'm such a moral, I don't sin like that person, guilty. That's what God is saying. You see, we do the same thing today. We really do. Oh, you must be baptized in order to be saved. Oh, the King James Version is the only inspired text as if, God, as if Apostle Paul's written in 16th century English. Oh, the Baptist hymnal is the only praise that God accepts. What? For like thousands of years they were doing it wrong until we came up with that? I don't think so. If you think like this, please see Romans chapter 2. Remember, Paul just wrote Romans chapter 1 about some pretty heavy-duty stuff, about people rejected God, they worshiped everything under the sun, and so God gives them up to themselves. And the religious people read Romans chapter 1 and go, Yeah, Paul, yeah, that, yeah, you tell them. You tell them what they're doing wrong. And Paul says, Oh, well, hold on to your horses, religious person. I've got a word for you too. Pick it up, verse 3. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, hear the practice such things? That's what he's talking about. And yet do them yourselves that you will escape the judgment of God? This is what's happening. The, the, the religious person is sitting on their high horse, looking down at their nose at, the, at those who say they don't even know God, and they're judging them. But what they're forgetting is that they too will be judged by God. John Stott, a preacher from way back when, he, he said this. He said, quote, what we're often doing is seeing our faults in others and judging them vicariously. That way we experience the pleasure of self-righteousness without the pain of penance. Think about that. That's deep. Why do we point the finger at somebody else? Because it makes us feel good. Oh, yeah. I to point the finger at them and I don't have to change. You see, the problem is in our thinking. That, that verse, verse 3, says, do you suppose, O oh man? That's what he's thinking. The word that's translated, and I'm reading from the ESV, as suppose, uh, maybe it says think in some of your Bibles. It's the Greek word logizomai. Logizomai means to evaluate or to count on. It's where we get our English word logic from. Paul's saying, hey, religious person, you that are counting on that God's not going to hold you accountable for your pious attitudes, God will. That's what Paul is saying. You see, the, law, the, the, excuse me, the religious person is very logical, but they're not theological. What a religious person does is they calculate and evaluate people's lifestyle, but he does it falsely. The religious person is, is in danger because of the self-righteous attitude. 
You see, someone who is self-righteous, what they're doing is they're underestimating the perfection of God and they're overestimating their own. What a religious person forgets, here's God's standard, perfection. Oh, God doesn't require perfection. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. And the truth is, every single one of us falls short. God is a holy God. And the truth is, he should smoke every single one of us because there is none righteous. No, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The religious person is the hypocrite that's resting in their hope that that their hypocrisy is going to cause God to overlook their sin. Paul says, no. They're hoping that that God would just kind of let it pass. But they're also hoping that God's going to lay the hammer down on someone else. You see, what they want is God to grade on a curve. That's what they're really hoping. And they're like, hey, everybody on the, on the right side of the curve is going to get a passing grade. They're doing good. Everyone on the left side of the curve, not so good, going to hell. But here's the truth. God isn't graded on a, on a bell-shaped curve. It's a pass-fail. Here's the deal. We all failed. Every single one of us. There is no teacher's pet. No one passes the test. Everyone's going to hell. So good luck justifying yourself in some little act that you do. And some, oh, I'm very moral. Oh, there's something I don't do. God's going to let me in. I don't think so. Now, before anybody starts blasting off emails, hey, Pastor John, I'd like to meet with you after church to set me straight on where I got this wrong. Excuse me. God's not telling us to overlook sin. He's not. You know, the the mantra of the Christian left is Matthew 7, verse 1, judge not, lest you be judged. And they forget the rest of that chapter because Jesus said, hey, go get the two by four out of your eye and then go remove the speck out of your brothers, right? Paul's not saying that we should turn a blind eye to sin because that would be sinful too. Paul is trying to make it crystal clear. That we're all in a heap heck of a mess. That's what he's trying to tell us, that we aren't good enough. The heathen that says he doesn't know God, he's going to hell. And the religious person that says they know God and does all these acts, going to hell too. Paul knows that there are people that are going to point to their religion as a means of salvation. You're thinking, why would Paul think like that? The answer is because that's exactly who Saul of Tarsus was. Before having a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, Saul of Tarsus was very religious, right? He knew that all his former contemporaries were going to point to their religion as their means of salvation. That's exactly where a lot of people are. People look at their religion and they they see how bad it is and they go, oh, look how good I am because I do these religious acts. You know what's true? There's a lot of people that want to point out how bad the world is and they forget about the goodness of God. Look in verse number four. Paul says, Or do you presume on the riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? There are so many people that just want to point out how wicked the world is and forget about talking about how good God is. That's what Paul just said. Do presume on the riches of his kindness for forbearance. So Paul's talking about the forbearance of God. It's the Greek word anohe. It means tolerance. 
It means to withhold judgment, to hold those horses back, hold them back. That's what I see when I read this. I remember back, like sometime after I got saved, I got saved when I was 29 years old, and I look back and go, whoa, I should be in hell right now. Because let's say from the ages of my early teen years to the age of 29, and truth is beyond 29, and in between there was a whole piles of sin. I mean, big heaping piles of sin. That, that was me. So let's say I died when I was 23, when I was doing one of a million stupid things. I'd be in hell for all eternity. I would deserve that. But you know what God did? He waited He waited to give me more time to hear a preacher preach, to understand the gospel, and come to recognize the God-man, Jesus, as my Savior, and I was reborn on that day. So the forbearance talks about withholding judgment. It's like God's calling a temporary truth. He's calling off the dogs for the time being. Do you remember there was a time when God said, hey, I'm going to judge the whole world. I'm going to judge the whole world with this thing called the flood. In the meantime, he said, hey, Noah, build a boat and preach. And then God waited 120 years. The forbearance of God lasted 120 years. That's what we're talking about here. Hey, there came a day when Jesus died on a cross. He resurrected from the grave. He, He told his church, hey, go and preach the gospel of the whole world. And guess what? I'm coming back. Hey, before I come back, there's going to be this little thing called the tribulation. It's going to be horrible. It is so bad that if I don't come back, every man, woman, and child in the whole world would die. But, but at the end of that seven year, I'm going to come back and rescue my people. He said that yeah, 2,000 years ago. That's the forbearance of God. That's forbearance where God's holding back his judgment on the world. You know, that, well, that word forbearance, it's a great word. I want to spend more time on it, but I want to keep going. Right next to that word, there's another amazing word. In the ESV, it says patience. Maybe your Bible says long-suffering. Patience or long-suffering is a compound of two Greek words that come together that mean big and anger. And you, when you put those together and it references to God, it means that, that God can hold back a lot of, of anger without his judgment spilling over. It's almost like you can chuck rocks at God for a really, really long time, and you or I, we'd blow up. But God is so patient, and he, 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 he just waits and waits. Read verse 4 again. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The, the word kindness might be translated as goodness in your Bibles, okay? It's the Greek word Christos. Sounds like Christ to me. That's what I hear. Uh, The word for God, it actually derives from our Anglo-Saxon word for good. That's because God is good all the time and all the time God is good. Well, anyways, there are people that actually scorn the goodness of God. You're thinking, no, Nobody does that. Nobody looks at how good God is, and nobody gets mad at that, right? Well, do you remember in the gospel, specifically John chapter 8, there was a lady that was caught in adultery in the very act, and the religious people grabbed her, and they drug her to Jesus, either half naked or totally naked. And she said, they said, hey, Jesus, the law says that we're supposed to throw rocks at her until she's dead. What do you say? And he said, hey, you jokers that are without 
sin, cast the first rock. Again, that's my, my translation. And they all dropped their stones one by one and left. And then Jesus says, woman, where are your accusers? She said, I have none. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Those religious guys that drug her, do you think they were happy with that? Do you think they looked at the forgiveness and kindness and awesomeness of Jesus and went, yeah, let's throw a party? No. They looked at that and they said, we have to kill him. That's why religious people, that's what they do when they see the forbearance and long-suffering and goodness God. It actually makes them angry. Let me give you an example of something that happened here a couple decades ago. and You decide for yourself if this kind of goodness makes you angry or not. Years ago, there was a serial killer by the name of Ted Bundy. You probably have heard of, her, heard of him. He was admitted to raping and killing 30 victims over the course of four years. He was sentenced to the death penalty for his crimes. But before he was put to death, he asked that Dr. James Dobson come and interview him. And so Dr. James Dobson went to the jail and spent hours with him. And Bundy was very open and honest and talked about everything. He admitted to everything. So Dobson spent a long time with him and shared the gospel with him. James Dobson said that Ted Bundy had a very sincere profession of faith. Dobson said that he believed that that Ted Bundy authentically committed his life to Jesus because he was sorry for his past. And he was amazed that there was a God in heaven that could love a sinner like him. Dobson said this, quote, I believe it was absolutely sincere. I believe that he's saved. Can you believe that Dr. James Dobson received a lot of hate? That, that God, because he said God can forgive a sinner like Ted Bundy. And so what happened is instead of loving God for having, being so good and long, and patient and long suffering, they actually got mad at James Dobson for saying God can forgive badness. So let me ask you again, don't raise your hands. Does that make you angry? That a person as evil as Ted Bundy could be forgiven? Keep that to yourself. The question is, why is God so good? Why is God so long-suffering? What is the purpose behind his forbearance? The answer is in verse 4. It says, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. I've been told by by people, I've been told, hey, you need to preach more on hell. I'm like, really? I thought I preached on hell a lot. Apparently not enough for some people. Let me tell you, preaching on hell can get somebody to say a prayer. But you know what causes them to give their life to Jesus? The kindness and goodness and patience that can only come from God. Read 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. Let me tell you, God's not being lenient when he waits for judgment. God's not turning a blind blind eye to sin. He's not. He wants more people to come to faith. Why would anybody despise that? Why would anybody look down on that? Why would that make anybody angry? Let me ask this question. Was God patient with you in your rebellion before you came to know Jesus as your Savior? Because the truth is, there was all a point when all of us didn't know Christ At some point, we came to know Christ, and so that should make us love God even more. Look how good he is that he didn't 
He didn't kill me back then when he should have. So as redeemed individuals filled with the Holy Spirit, what we should do, we should see lost sinners like God sees them. The truth is religious people don't. We don't see lost sinners like, like, like God sees them. And the reason, because we're blind. Pick it up, read verse 5. But because of your hard and impotent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulations and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, but also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. This whole section of Scripture It's uncovering the human tendency to be hard on others when we're judging their sin, but then soft on our own. Sometimes we call that righteous indignation, but that's an inaccurate term because none of us are righteous. It should really be self-righteous indignation. Sometimes you're being hard on others, but you're just being soft on yourself. It's like a man that walks across his lawn and unknowingly steps in poo, and then goes into his living room and sits in his chair and goes... Smells like poo in here. And it gets up and goes into the kitchen and is milling around and goes, Smells like poo in here too. And then goes into his bedroom and lays in his bed and goes, Man, this whole house smells like poo. No, the poo is you. You're the problem. You know why? Because you're blind. You're blind to your own sin. That's what Paul is, is saying. Do you remember in the gospel, specifically Mark chapter 3, there was this situation where Jesus is in the synagogue and there's this man with a withered hand and, and Mark tells us, and they watch Jesus. They're watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Ooh, right? Dun, dun, dun. There should be music there. Mark chapter 3, verse 4, read it. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or kill? They were silent. I love that little parenthetical phrase, and they were silent. Why? Because they knew they were about to get embarrassed. Verse 5, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved by the hardness of their of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Did you know that a hard heart makes Jesus angry? And there's some that go, oh, not Jesus. He can't be angry because it's just love, love, love with Jesus. No. According to the Bible, a hard heart makes Jesus angry. Hard hearts are an epidemic of proportion in America. So much religion and not enough people willing to go share the gospel. Did you know that 18.2 million Americans have heart disease? Did you know that? Probably didn't know that. I don't know. And, and one in four Americans die from heart disease. That's what my statistics tell me. You know what the first sign of heart disease is? When the lights go out. When you're just going about your day and all of a sudden, wham, grabbing your chest. You're like, I'm about to die. That's the first sign of heart disease. Did you know most people aren't aware of their own spiritual condition? They're not. 
You see, the hardening of your physical heart can end your life. The hardening of your spiritual heart can end you in hell for all eternity. So many just want to wear the spiritual mask of religion, and I do this, and I don't do that, and I I do all this stuff. Romans chapter 2 is where Paul just grabs that mask and rips it off of the religious person to tell them they're not right with God. Paul's exposing them. He wants them to know you got to be saved by grace. It's the only way for all his sin and fall short of the glory of God. But the good news, anyone can be saved. Anyone. Paul's a lot of things, but this is what I say about Paul. Not a hypocrite. People can say, oh, he's over-opinionated, he's loud, he's brash, he's whatever. Paul's not a hypocrite, right? Paul knows how bad he is. Read 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. This is what Paul says. He says, the saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. How about you? But I look at my own life, I'm like, I think I could give Paul a run for his money on that title. World heavyweight champ of sinners, I think that's me. Could God be merciful on someone like me? Here's the question, and I'll conclude this message. What are you resting in for your eternal destiny? Religion or righteousness? Remember what I said, the, what the book of Romans is about? It's about the imputed righteousness of Christ. Because here's the deal. Our spiritual bank account, we're not at zero. We're at like negative. We are below water on this. And by placing faith in Christ, it's kind of like it's an accounting term. It's a mathematical term where Jesus wire transfers his righteousness and ours. Do I deserve that? No, I don't. How do I get that? Not by some religious act. It's not by doing good or not doing bad. That doesn't do it. It's solely by grace. It's grace through faith. Faith in what? In Jesus. That he came. He died. Not because of his sin, but for you and me. Sinners like us. And he was buried in the tomb and he rose again on the third day to say, see, I can give you eternal life if you place faith in me. The religion's not going to do it. The abstaining from this, that, and the other thing, it's not going to do it. Your list of morality is not going to do it. Only Jesus can do it. The Bible says whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. If you've never cried out to him, there must be this moment of spiritual clarity where you go, I'm a sinner. God should kill me. But yet he waited. His forbearance and long-suffering gave me more time to hear this message and to cry out. And for most of us, it's a prayer. It's saying, God, save me. I give you my life. Pray this name of Jesus Christ. Amen.